0: Our Father, we thank you that you so love the world, that you sent your one and only Son into the world, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So Lord, we thank you for that promise that you give us. We thank you for the love that you've demonstrated, the love that that we don't deserve, that we cannot earn, but that you have freely given us because you are a good and a gracious God. And so Lord, we pray that in the time that we have together right now, that you will Open our eyes in fresh ways to the greatness of what you've accomplished for us through Jesus, and through the love that you've shown by sending Him into this world. we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we just sang a song that asked the question of Jesus, "What child is this?" In more common uh, contemporary language would be, "Who is this child?" And in Luke chapter two, we see an account of the birth. Of Jesus. I want to read for us Luke two, one through seven. It says that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Corinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was from the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there is no place for them in the inn. So that is the account of the birth of Jesus. And when we read that in Luke 2, 1-7, through 7, it just seems so matter-of-fact, so commonplace. I mean, because babies are born every single day. And if you only read that one section right there, there would be no circumstances in those verses that would stand out as anything special. Yet Jesus truly was a spectacular baby. And we see that very clearly just a few verses later in Luke 2, when an angel appeared to some shepherds. And said to those shepherds, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And so that was a a strong indication that baby Jesus was someone who was incredibly special. Something spectacular was taking place there. And today, as we dig into scripture, I'm praying and hoping that our eyes will be opened in fresh ways to how amazing, how astounding this baby Jesus really was. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Last week we began this series called Christmas Presence. And we looked last week at the fact that we are designed by God to live in the presence of God. That is how we are designed to thrive, to live in consistent and constant recognition of the presence of God around us and even in our lives. And God is everywhere, but the key for us is that we need to recognize and lean on the presence of God. As we talked about last week, when we do so, when we do recognize God's presence right in our midst and right in our lives, He can give us a tremendous sense of peace amidst challenges. He can give us clarity of perspective when we aren't quite sure what's going on. Even though it does not fix all of our problems, it still transforms us because we recognize, you know, God is here with me. And if God is for me, no one can stand against me. So that's what we looked at last week. And then this, this idea of, of Christmas presents, we have to understand that the ultimate Christmas gift is Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the, the supreme manifestation of the presence of God in our midst. I want to turn our attention uh, specifically to John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what this verse is saying is that Jesus was the presence of God on earth. Jesus was the presence of God on earth. And here in verse 14, it's specifically saying that God became flesh. Now, literally, it says the Word became flesh. And the Word, this term Word, was a title for God the Son. And we have to understand that that for pretty much everyone, there are a variety of names and titles that people can go by. For instance, for myself, you know, my primary name is Brandon, That's how people know me. But I have a variety of titles as well. For instance, I am a husband. I am a father. I'm also a son. And I am a brother. I'm an uncle. And I'm a nephew. I'm a pastor. I mean, those are a handful of titles, and each one is appropriate and accurate in its own way. And down through the years, I've had a variety of nicknames as well. I mean, for instance... Um, When I was in middle school, a bunch of people called me chicken legs. Why are you laughing? I I thought it was a term of endearment. I didn't quite pick up on the fact that when uh, my uh, substitute teacher in my gym class um, called out, hey, look at those chicken legs going, when I was running between first and second base, I didn't realize that the gym teacher was mocking me. My friends picked up on chicken legs, and I was called chicken legs for several years. I had an upgrade in, in nicknames a handful of years ago when I worked at a landscape company because there everyone called me Bronco. A, a pretty decent upgrade, isn't it, from chicken legs? When I, when I played basketball at the rec center in college, most of the fellow players called me Lemons. It's my last name. That's what oftentimes happens in sports. And so that's just an example of different titles and different names. And if we went around the room, all of you could share the same types of things. That that one person could be called various names, various titles that are all accurate in their own way. And the same is true of God. Within the Trinity, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And one of the titles of God the Son is this term, Word. Word. John, the Apostle John, who wrote this biography of Jesus, is the one who introduces us to Jesus as the Word. And it happens in the first verse. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so what we see here, especially in that last phrase, is the Word was God. That is a key thing to understand is the Word was God. You combine that then with verse 14 the word was god and the word became flesh what that's saying is that god became flesh in the form of in jesus you have god in human form and that is just absolutely astounding i think if you've been around church or christianity for any length of time you're familiar with this teaching i know i am but 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 it's easy to take that for granted to, To forget how absolutely astonishing it is that God would take on human form. So let's think for a minute about who God is. God is completely different than everything else in the entire universe. One reason is that God alone is eternal. God has existed forever and everything else that exists in this universe came from God. And so when we look at the baby Jesus, it's the creator entering his creation. That is astounding. Think about Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jump ahead to John 1, 1, which is the deliberate echo of Genesis 1, 1. Genesis 1-1 said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1-1 says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word. So again, the Creator entered His creation in the form of Jesus. That is astonishing. You think about the fact that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that He is supreme over all. You look at human leaders Even the top leaders, kings, queens, presidents, dictators, CEOs of major corporations. In the presence of the Almighty God, their power is nothing. You look at people who are rich in this world. Bill Gates or uh, Middle East oil tycoons. Their wealth is nothing in comparison to God's riches. Yet he became flesh. You think about God's holiness, how in the presence of God and all of his glory and holiness, no one can stand in our natural sinful state. We all would be like Isaiah, who just got a little glimpse of God's glory when Isaiah said, woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I mean, he's basically saying, in comparison to God's glory, I am nothing, and I deserve to die on in this instant. And, and so... So that's the idea of God's holiness and God's transcendence. And when we understand who God really is, it makes his incarnation, him becoming flesh, all the more astounding. So in Jesus, God became flesh. The creator entered his creation. So John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a paraphrase of the Bible called the message. And I, I like the way the message uh, summarizes John 1:14. It says, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And I kind of like the idea of moving into the neighborhood because when you move into a neighborhood it means that's a place that you want to be. You, you want to be in proximity to the others who are there and that's what Jesus did. That's, that's what Jesus represents. It's God wanting to be around us. God wanting to be in our presence and us to be in His presence. He dwelled in. Among us. But he also not only dwelled among us, he became like us and sharing humanity with us. Let me help put this into perspective a little bit. Back in August, my my family adopted two kittens. And we love these cats. I mean, they're still technically kittens, but they're kind of cat-sized now. Um, But we love these cats. I mean, they bring so much love and joy and happiness to our house I'm not quite sure if the parents or the kids love them more. I mean, we as parents, we, we like them a whole lot too. They're, they're just a whole lot of fun. And so now a reality in the Lemons household is that we dwell among cats. I think, I th- I think that the, the humans still run the house, but the cats seem to be everywhere. And so they're fun. We dwell among cats. But there is a huge difference between dwelling among cats And being a cat. Now let me just go a little bit farther down this line of thinking. If I really wanted to relate to a cat on their level, and if I really wanted to be able to speak the cat language and fully experience what it means to be a cat, the best way to do so is to become a cat. And again, there is a huge difference between me dwelling among the cats and me becoming a cat. But the interesting thing about Jesus is that in Jesus, God was not only dwelling among people, he became a people. He became human. And speaking for myself, I really don't want to be a cat. Although Shelly and I, my wife, we we do joke at least once a week about how it would be kind of nice to be a cat. Because, you know, cats just kind of lounge around the house all day. They play when they want to play. They sleep when they want to sleep. And they just get the best of the love and affection of the family. And then if the family, if someone's not in a good mood, the cats just run and go do their own thing. It it would be kind of nice to be a cat sometimes. But I really do not want to be a cat. Because I feel like that would be a huge downgrade from who I currently am. But you look at God. He wanted to become human. He wanted to become human. It wasn't like he was just sitting up in heaven one day saying, oh, I'm kind of bored. I've been around for a long, long time. Let's try something new. How about if I spice things up and I'll just try being a human for a little while? That's not what God was thinking. And he wanted to become a human because of his love for us. Because God recognized that we as humans, we are messed up. And we have a problem that we cannot fix because of our sin. That sin enslaves us. That sin is destroying us. That sin will destroy us for eternity. And So out of God's love for us, he wanted to become human because he knew that the way to become the perfect substitute who could die in our place to pay our death penalty for sin was to become human. So God wanted to become Human. In order to redeem us. He did that out of love. And you think about the the distance between being human and cat. I mean there's a big downgrade there in my mind. But there is a much greater distance. And a much greater humility involved. For God to become human. Than for a human to become a cat. The distance between God and humanity. In terms of that condescension. Is practically infinite. Yet God did that out of his tremendous love and grace. So something we have to understand as we look at the birth of Jesus is that, is that the incarnation, which was God becoming flesh, the incarnation was necessary for our redemption. Without God becoming flesh, there's no opportunity for us to be redeemed from our sins. So God did this out of love. Now one of the things we have to understand when God became flesh is that he became a human but he was more than merely a human. You and I, we are merely humans. We are not more than human. We're not superhuman. We're just human. But Jesus, when when he was born in Bethlehem, God becoming flesh, he was not merely human. He was more than human because he was fully human, but he was still fully God. And that, again, is astounding. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, as we look at this reality of, of Jesus being God in human form, one of the things that happens here is that Jesus being God walking among us, He reveals God's loving heart. Jesus reveals God's loving heart. Come back to the idea of, of Jesus being the Word of God. What do words do? I mean, I'm speaking right now. I'm speaking words. You're hearing words. And I know you all speak words too. What do words do? What's the function of words? Well, the function of words is to communicate with someone else. As I am speaking at this moment, I am communicating to you what is in my mind and what I've read in Scripture. I'm communicating. Words are designed to communicate what's inside of us. We we speak in order to make our intentions and our thoughts and our desires and our passions clear to someone else. And that is why the Apostle John, when he's writing about Jesus here, that's why he describes Jesus as the Word. Because Jesus communicates from God to humanity the heart and the love of God. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And it goes on in verse 14 to say, We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jump down to verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God. Why? Because God is invisible. He lives in an unapproachable light. He is so incredibly glorious and holy that that no one in our natural sinful state can see God. It says, No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So that's talking about God the Son, who's from eternity past been at the Heavenly Father's side. He, when he came here in the form of Jesus, the incarnation, he has made known to us who the Father is. He has revealed God's heart and God's love to us. So we have seen his glory, and it says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Let's talk for a minute about the relationship between grace and truth. Truth on the one hand, especially when you look at God's understanding of truth, part of truth is that God sees us as we really are in all of our brokenness. That's part of God seeing us in truth, is that he sees us as we really are in all of our brokenness. And that can make us incredibly scared. It makes us want to hide kind of like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they sinned. Truth sees us as we really are. But Jesus, representing God's heart, is full of of not only truth, but also grace. Grace loves us as we really are. Yet it doesn't leave us where we are, because grace wants to transform us. Jesus came full of grace and truth. He came to redeem us and to transform us. And again, when we look at Jesus, we see the heart of God, and we see how God responds to sin. God does not like sin at all. God despises sin. God uh, cannot tolerate sin in his presence. But we still see in Jesus God's response to that sin. Because Jesus shows us that God did not look at us and say, Well, you all, you sinful beings, you shame on you. I, I don't want to be around you anymore. I hate you. Get away from me. That's not what Jesus did. Or that's not, not what God did. In Jesus, we see God running towards us. He sees that we have a major problem of sin. And rather than running away from us or saying, get out of my presence, he came toward us. He brought his presence to earth in the form of Jesus. And that shows us his tremendous love. So again, I mean, hopefully you're seeing this is just amazing when we really get get our minds around who Jesus was. And one of the things that shows us is that there is someone, and it's a big someone in this universe, who really cares about us. You and me, and this is a big deal because, you know, as we go through life, you've probably all had times where we wonder, does anyone really care about us? I mean, hopefully you always have family or friends around you who you know beyond a shadow of a doubt care for you. But as we zoom out a little bit in our lives, we can feel so insignificant. I mean, you look at politicians and uh, those who lead media and you look at those who lead in corporate America, realistically, to these large leaders, you and I are pretty much just a number. We are someone who can get them a vote. We are someone who can give them some money. But realistically, for the majority of leaders in America, they don't know who we are. And I mean, they might care a little bit if they came face to face with us, but realistically, most of them aren't coming face to face with us either. And so we can go through life just feeling like, do our lives really matter? Does anyone, especially anyone, really care beyond just our immediate circle of people? And you look at the the population of the United States, 325 million people. I'm one person. You are one person. One in 325 million is not much. You look at the population of the whole whole world, 7.5 billion people in the world. We are each one person. We can feel like a little speck of sand on a beach one speck of sand doesn't seem like it's very significant at all but remember Jesus reveals the heart of God you look at how Jesus interacted with normal ordinary everyday people back in his day and you see God's care for ordinary everyday people even here in the 21st century i mean you look at Jesus he he encounters a woman we know her as the woman at the well in John chapter 4 she is a social outcast she has a trail of broken marriages in her past Yet Jesus speaks to her lovingly. He points her to a relationship with God through himself. And he's speaking to her with such genuine care that she has probably not experienced for a long time, if ever. The love of God is demonstrated through Jesus for ordinary people. I mean, you look at this woman uh, who was caught in the act of adultery. The Jewish leaders want to stone her to death for that adultery. Jesus protects her. He forgives her. And then he sets her on a new direction in life. You see, again, the care of Jesus for ordinary, everyday people. When Jesus is going through his his day and he runs into someone who has a physical ailment or a health issue, rather than just brushing them off or ignoring them, he gives them his attention. He cares for ordinary, everyday people. You look at his interactions with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jewish leader. Nicodemus was a skeptic. He was also scared to be associated with Jesus, but he was still kind of seeking Jesus out a little bit, and Jesus engaged him in dialogue. He ended up pointing him to a, a right relationship with God through himself. You look at Jesus as he, he encounters Zacchaeus. I mean, you know the, the song, probably, little Zacchaeus up in a tree. well, just want to get a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus sees Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was not... Trying to be seen by Jesus, he, he more wanted to see Jesus. But but Jesus sees Jesus up, in, Jesus sees Zacchaeus up on the tree, and invites himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' house that day. And that's such an incredible honor to Zacchaeus. Jesus cares for ordinary people. You look at Lazarus in John 11. When Lazarus died, what was Jesus' response? Among other things, it says Jesus wept. And so as we go through our lives. There are going to be times maybe where we are just kind of wandering or where we feel like, does anyone really care? Especially anyone who matters, who can make a difference, who can give me a sense of peace and confidence as I'm going through the trials of life. And you can know as you look at Jesus, because Jesus reveals the heart of God, you can know know, God cares for me. And I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so these are all reasons to celebrate the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus shows very clearly that God wants to be with us. God wants to be with us, and and he wants us to be in his presence. Because that's how he designed us, and even when we sinned against him, his love compelled him to come rescue us. And so what we have to understand is that Jesus is the ultimate Christmas present. Jesus was was the presence of God on earth who opened the door to a deep, enduring experience of God's presence. So, so he came. He was the presence of God on earth. But his goal in coming was not just to do stuff during those 30-some years. It was to open the door so that us, even here in the 21st century, can experience a deep, enduring experience of God's presence in our lives. In the book of John, John is trying to make it very clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. I and mean, he does it in, the, in what we've been looking at, but he does it in the rest of the book as well. And one of the illustrations that John uses to help us understand that Jesus is God and God's presence here on earth is that he is referring to what's known as the Jewish tabernacle. The Jewish tabernacle was a tent that God had, it was a large, huge tent, that, that God had the Israelites make centuries before the time of Jesus in this tabernacle, and then later the temple, which was modeled after the tabernacle. The tabernacle represented God's presence among his people. Now, I don't know if you read Greek. You probably don't. I mean, most people don't read Greek, but the original, language, the original um, Bible, New Testament, was written in Greek. Let me read for you what John 1.14 would say. Um, I'm going to read it in English. But what, what it would say literally, if you read it in Greek, it would literally say, "The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us." In the form of Jesus, God was tabernacling among us. This would, would have immediately called to the minds of John's Jewish listeners the tabernacle. They, they had been so important to Israel for so long. Remember that tabernacle represented the presence of God among his people. Now one of the interesting things about about the tabernacle was how when you look at the practices associated with the tabernacle, it really segregated people away from God. I mean, yeah, they could go there to meet with God, but they, they did not have the ability to be in the intimate presence of God. Because you see there's that structure that's covered there um, in there— Part of that is called the Most Holy Place. There was a room in there called the Most Holy Place, that was seen as the most intimate presence of God on earth. There was only one person who was allowed to go in the Most Holy Place, the High Priest, and he could only go in there one time per year. So you see that presence, or access to God's intimate presence, was severely restricted in the Tabernacle. Yet the Israelites still celebrated the tabernacle because it represented God's presence among them. Now Jesus, when he, when he was born, God in human form, he was a new and better tabernacle among the people because he was representing the presence of God. He was the presence of God. And what he did, why he was so much better than the original tabernacle, was that he gave people complete confident access to the intimate presence of God. Let me read for us Hebrews chapter 10 uh, verses 19 through 22. Hebrews ten nineteen through 22 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so what this is saying is that when Jesus came, and specifically when Jesus died and was resurrected, he blew open the doors of the most holy place saying, Now anyone and everyone who comes to God through Jesus has access to the intimate presence of God. Anytime they want. I mean, now there weren't literal doors that he blew open. Literally what happened is that the curtain that separated the most holy place from the world was ripped in two by God. Indicating that we have access to God anytime we want to. And the cool thing is with that, because God is infinite and God is everywhere, we don't have to stand in line and wait to be in God's presence. We can talk with God. We can have a relationship with him anywhere and anytime. That is what Jesus makes available. And we don't have to fear coming into God's presence because as it says in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ Jesus means that we are looking to Jesus alone to pay our death penalty for sin. We recognize we cannot reconcile ourselves with God through good works and religious activities. We look to what Jesus did on the cross, paying our death penalty for us. That's an act of faith. It's an act of surrender on our part. That's what it means uh, to come into a relationship with God through Jesus. And you think about how different this was than what Israelites experienced for centuries. I mean, they could come to the tabernacle. But that intimate presence of God in the most holy place, only one person could go in there and only once a year. Yet according to Hebrews chapter 10, we have access to God. Full access whenever we want. By coming to him through faith in Jesus. So again, hopefully it's clear to you that Jesus is the Christmas presence. Jesus is the Christmas present. He's the ultimate Christmas gift. And the gift that Jesus gives is the presence of God available to every single one of us. On an ongoing, enduring basis. What a a privilege that is. And this morning, to help us remember what Jesus did to accomplish this for us, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. God and Jesus came to earth in human form. But he didn't come just to teach us or to be an example for us. He did those things, but more. He came to die for us. So the body that that he took on first in Bethlehem and then he grew into a man, that body was broken on our behalf. We didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve that, but he did it out of love in order to pay the death penalty we deserve for our sins. And the reason he did that was to open the door for us to have a confident and eternal relationship with God. So to help prepare our hearts for celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing together. So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to invite us to sing in just a moment to prepare our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to come to this earth That was a step that um, that was incredibly humbling. Lord, you are incredibly generous because we did not deserve that one bit. But we say thank you. And I pray that as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, that you will renew our hearts with a sense of gratitude and joy as we remember the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. at christmas time we focus so much on the birth of jesus but we have to recognize that we can't fully understand the birth of jesus without without also remembering the death of jesus because his birth came he came for a reason and that reason led him to the cross as we just sang in that song he was born to bleed kind of a, a gruesome type of idea but the reality is he had to die pay our death penalty for sin because the penalty had to be paid and he willingly paid it on our behalf. So this morning we celebrate the Lord's Supper remembering that the body that Jesus took on when he came to earth was broken on our behalf. That's what the bread represents, Christ's body broken for us. The cup represents Christ's blood shed for us. And if you have come to faith in Jesus, if you're trusting in him to forgive you of your sins and reconcile you with God, you're welcome to join with us this morning in the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of regular tender of freedoms, but again, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you're welcome to join with us. In just a moment, the servers will pass out the the bread and the cup. As you receive them, I encourage you to hold on to them until everyone's been served. Then I will lead us in partaking together as a sign of our unity in Christ. But as you hold on to the bread, and as you hold on to the cup, reflect on the great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf give him thanks in your heart. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now in a moment, as you hold the cup, remember the words of Hebrews chapter 10, that we have confidence to enter the most holy place through the blood of Christ and the cup represents Christ's blood shed for us.